forgiveness is a powerful thing. Some say that without forgiveness, um, there is no future. The thing about forgiveness, forgiveness requires us uh, to move to a certain place, to to approach, uh, to get to a, a place together. We can't be alone. We can't be in, in, in an empty room. It doesn't work that way. The book of Genesis ends with a story of forgiveness. I, I think it's a, a great ending to a, a very colorful story of Jacob's family. Maybe you remember Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. He's famous for having the dream about the ladder. There's even a song, Jacob's Ladder. I've uh, been singing it since I was little. You know, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. It's, it's, that, it's that Jacob. Uh, Jacob also literally had a wrestling match with God. And when he got off the mat, he had a, a gimpy hip, a gimpy hip, and a new name. Uh, Jacob becomes Israel. Israel uh, whose 12 sons become the 12 tribes, uh, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, the nation of Israel. So in these past weeks, we've been, been talking a lot about forgiveness. Uh, we've talked about our need to have forgiveness with God. And fortunately for us, uh, God is in the business of forgiving sin. Uh, we, we've talked a lot about uh, our need to have forgiveness with each other. And, and I think most all of us know and understand uh, the healing that happens uh, on, on the other side of that forgiveness, the healing that we need. Um, in our scripture text today, it, it's about Jacob's 12 sons. It's about Joseph and his brothers. Jacob has died uh, at this point, and the family is, is just trying to, to put things back together. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty serious and it's a, a, a pretty powerful story. Uh, and it's a story of forgiveness, group forgiveness. And in this case, uh, a family group. Uh, a, a family group that becomes a nation. We know about this sort of thing. We know about the, the ways um, families can become divided, uh, oftentimes bitterly divided. Uh, in scenarios like this, when, when mom or pops has died, um, and families, like all of a sudden, they, they just become uh, like a different beast. They begin fighting over things like inheritance, like literally fighting over stuff. Um, I, as a pastor, I have experienced families that they have uh, inflicted or received such offense and such disagreement that like, it completely ruins the funeral or other uh, f- like life celebrations like weddings and, and graduations. Uh, it, it really kind of amazes me every time I witness and experience this kind of dynamic. Uh, and then I, I think about like politics, politics in the family. You know, like we joke about it sometimes like, okay, when it comes to politics, you've got to be careful what you say with Uncle Bob at the family reunion. Um, but, you know, that's not that funny anymore, uh, especially not in these times. Like the, the, the political divisions that are just thick around us, uh, to me, it's, it's, um, it's frightening and it's dangerous. Uh, 
Like, like when people can't even get in the same room and, and talk about things that, that really matter. Uh, our, our relationships are broken. And, and, and I think uh, these, these political groups on, on all sides are not only becoming more divisive, um, but more venomous too. And it's a problem. I, I was reminded of the, uh, uh, that, that famous family feud, the, the Hatfields and the McCoys. I'm sure you probably are familiar with it. I'm sure you probably know all the details. There was a movie in 2012 with, with Kevin Costner. Uh, I know that, that when I was a little boy, my brothers and I, every day after school, we'd come home and we'd be watching cartoons and we'd watch The Flintstones. And I remember, uh, I can still see it in my mind, the, the episode of The Flintstones that was based on this Hatfield and McCoy family feud, except on The Flintstones, it was the, the Hat Rocks and, and the Gruesomes. Um, but they, they were two mountaineer families, um, each living on, on one side of Tug Fork. Uh, it, was a, it was a border stream um, that, that separated uh, uh, Pike County, Kentucky with, with Logan County, uh, West Virginia. Uh, the origins of the feud are, are kind of obscure. Nobody knows exactly. Some say that it was a, a land dispute. Some say it was because Hatfields and McCoys uh, some of them fought on, on different sides of the Civil War. Uh, some fought for the Union, some fought for the Confederacy. Uh, in most accounts, there's always a mention of Randall McCoy was convinced that a Hatfield stole one of his hogs. <laughs> and so over the years, there were lots of brawls, there was lots of gunfire, and by the time it was all said and done, uh, 13 people had been killed uh, one person was executed by the, the, the state of Kentucky. Eight others served time in, in prison for murder. Uh, it was a, a, a seriously dysfunctional family. Well, there was serious dysfunction in Jacob's family, too. His, his mom and dad were, were Isaac and Rebecca. His, his twin brother, older twin, uh, was Esau. And, and when you read in the book of, of Genesis uh, about their story, uh, you learn very quickly that Isaac and Rebekah played favorites with their sons. Um, Isaac loved Esau, the older son. Esau was, it says that when he was born, he just came out and he was just covered in red hair. He was like this, the manly one. He was uh, a skilled hunter. He was a man of the field. And, and uh, the text says that that Isaac loved him because he was fond of game. So Esau would put food on his table. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob, it says, was a quiet man, and he stayed in the tents. And so Rebekah, Jacob's mom, enters into this uh, deceptive scheme and helps Jacob steal Esau's uh, birthright, and not only the birthright, but the blessing. And those were huge things for the firstborn in that day. And so when this was discovered, man, it just all kind of broke loose. So um, there, was, there was fury, and there were, were threats of murder so bad uh, that, that Jacob had to run for his life. And his mom helps him flee and says, go, go live with my, uh, my brother Laban. And so, so Jacob flees to his, his uncle Laban. And then there's a whole story that unfolds there. Uh, the, the dishonesty and, and the deception, it continues. Jacob falls in love with Rachel. 
And so on the wedding night, uh, Laban secretly puts his older daughter Leah uh, in, in the wedding chamber. And so Jacob wakes up the next morning and he's married to, to Leah and not Rachel. I'm not quite sure how that happened, but <laughs> seven years of service, he gets to marry Rachel. Uh, this very dysfunctional family, it just the story, the narrative continues to unfold. And finally, uh, there are 12 sons, and he's leaving, and there's deception with livestock, and Jacob leaves with his huge family, uh, and, and with uh, some deception and a little help, he leaves a, a wealthy man. And then we come to the story of the 12 boys, and we, we see the, 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 the dysfunctional patterns that continue in at chapter 37. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other children because he was the son of his old age and he had made uh, for him a coat of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And so you know this, Joseph was a dreamer. And so He's out in the, in the field with his brothers, and I'm guessing a little bit of arrogance. Um, he tells them about this dream. Uh, he says, listen to this dream that I dreamed. Uh, there we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. Then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams. And because of his words. And so then Joseph goes out to them one day and they see him coming. And uh, the Bible says that they conspired to, to kill him. And um, Joseph comes and they seize him and they take off this coat of many colors and, and they rip it and they put animal blood on it and they throw them down into this, into this pit, into this dried up well. And Reuben uh, actually has compassion for Joseph and convinces the, the other brothers to, to sell them to this, to this caravan that's passing through. And so he gets sold into slavery and he's taken to Egypt. And it's an amazing story. Uh, start reading Genesis chapter 37 or um, uh, watch, the, uh, watch the Donny Osmond musical. <laughs> Seriously, uh, it, it's really good. In our text for today, after Jacob dies, with all of this history, Joseph's brothers are wondering, I wonder if our brother Joseph still is holding a grudge against us. And now that daddy's gone, is there going to be trouble for us? So what really grabbed my attention and what I think is really significant in this story is they didn't flee. They didn't run off to some other place or to some other country. They approached him. They got in the same room with him and they worked it out. It wasn't easy. But the story ends with forgiveness. Forgiveness is a powerful force. I found this book on, on forgiveness. It's called The Sunflower. Um, on the possibilities and limits of forgiveness. Um, it's a story about a, a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp um, who was asked by uh, a dying man, a dying man who was a, a Nazi sh soldier, um, asked for forgiveness. 
the, the story is about that dilemma, the possibilities and, and limits of, of forgiveness. Well, after the story, there's just pages and pages of, of people who respond and, and weigh in on that dynamic. And one of them is, is Desmond Tutu. Um, he talks about um, the, the Truth and, and Reconciliation Commission uh, in South Africa uh, that was, uh, that was uh, appointed to, to deal with the, the gross human rights violations uh, that, that happened uh, with, with apartheid. Uh, he, he talks about being literally overwhelmed by the sheer depth of depravity and, and, and evil uh, that was exposed by this process. He, he tells of um, some police officers who, who are testifying uh, to the fact that they, um, they, they drugged uh, one of their charges, coffee, um, and, then, and then shot him and then uh, put him on fire. And while he's burning, they just, with such indifference, uh, have a barbecue. <laughs> Talks about the, the appalling nature of that kind of stuff and so much of that kind of stuff. Uh, that that was one side of the story. But then he was also amazed by, by the other side of it. And I just want to read part of that. Uh, the story of the victims, the survivors who were made to suffer so grievously yet despite this are ready to forgive. This magnanimity, this nobility of spirit is quite breathtakingly unbelievable. I have often felt, I should say, let us take off our shoes because at this moment we were standing on holy ground. And then he goes on to say, I sit and marvel at it all as I preside over the process of seeking to bring healing and reconciliation to a deeply divided, wounded, and traumatized nation. It is clear that if we look only to retributive justice, then we could just as well close up shop. Forgiveness is not some nebulous thing. It is practical politics. Without forgiveness, there is no future. You know, I have found that it's, it's easy to tell stories powerful stories of forgiveness um, from other places, from far away, far away places. Like, you know, we, we hear the stories of, of, of Jewish people being able to forgive Germany after the Holocaust. South Africans and, and their amazing ability to forgive after the apartheid. And, and in, in more recent history, the, the Rwandans finding ways somehow uh, to to live into forgiveness after the, the horrors of, of the genocide that happened there. But you know, I find that it's much harder for us to face the truth of our own situation here at home, in our own lives. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, your, uh, your, your brother has uh, harmed you in some way. Uh, you, you don't talk to your sister anymore and you haven't talked to him in a long time. Um, your, uh, your parents who have hurt you, um, maybe a child or, or children who uh, have abandoned you, or, or maybe a spouse that has cheated on you and been unfaithful to you. Those are very real, very hard, very painful things to face. And, and then I, th I think about this, this group thing, 
the group forgiveness, like our nation and, and uh, what we're growing through now. And we start facing um, the reality and the truth about our identity and about not just our history, uh, but about even to this present day. What, what does it look like to talk about group forgiveness from, from the side of power, the side of those who have um, been the perpetrators for Native people and for people of color and, and all sorts of things? When I believe that, that forgiveness is the way to the future, and yet I, I somehow feel like I'm on the wrong side of it, what can I expect? What can I do? And I don't have those answers. I'll tell you one thing, though, and this is kind of an invitation. I know that on October the 14th, as, as our church is um, finding courage to uh, listen to, to voices of people of color, to, to sit at, at tables together, much like we did uh, last year with Listening with Love, to have the courage to, to approach, to have the courage to uh, be in the same room, to sit at the same table, on, on that evening, Wednesday, October the 14th, uh, Bill Everett is going to uh, lead a conversation. And uh, the question is, what is forgiveness in the context of racism? I, I don't know that that evening will supply all the answers, but I know that it's an opportunity I don't want to miss, that, that we can't miss. Old Testament scholar um, Claudio Carvalis he says, forgiveness is costly. It demands repentance, and it should not happen without a long critical engagement between victims and perpetrators. Forgiveness goes hand in hand with issues of justice. Joseph's brothers talk about justice as a matter of simple reciprocity. Joseph changes this perspective and offers a new model of justice by way of forgiveness. And for us, as for Joseph and his brothers, forgiveness never comes without weeping. We come to this table today, and this table always reminds us that God is aware of our brokenness and that God weeps with us. Uh, this, this table, it's a mystery. And we talk about the mysteries of communion. We, we approach this table uh, with confession. And when we genuinely approach this table, we approach with humility. I don't know that we talk enough about humility. Maybe we don't talk enough about surrender. But with confession and with humility and with surrender, the possibilities of forgiveness, the power of forgiveness, it becomes real. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we have confessed our love for you. We have confessed our sin against you and against one another. We know our failure. We know this place where we stand. And so we invite your Holy Spirit 
into this space, into our homes, into our community, our nation, and our world. We pray that your, your Holy Spirit would be poured out on us, all of us gathered here. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Make us one with you in spirit. Make us one with each other. Make us one in ministry. Ministries of, of love and reconciliation in our nation and in all the world so that when Christ comes in final victory, we will all be at this table feasting with great joy. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. This is the body of Christ, broken for you. And this is the blood of Christ given for you. Amen.